welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Unpacking some of the less well-read and probably less well-known books. Just give me a, I'm just trying to get your attention here. So. <laughs> give me a thumbs up when, it, when, it's, when I can switch. There we go. Um, Yes, so we will be exploring some of the less well-read and therefore less well-known books of the Bible and looking at how they relate to today, um, despite some of them being written a very long time ago. Um, so today we are looking at the book of Nahum and we are going to get s- stuck right in. Um, anyone here ever read the book of Nahum? Can you put your hand in the air? Excellent. There are, you guys have... Every, I think we've been plowing through um, the uh, Bible in one year as a church, so you clearly we're do, we're, you're all managing it. Um, and so uh, Nahum is a character who isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible other than here, um, but it is widely accepted um, that he uh, was, was prophesying around 630 BC. I've got a few facts for you for those who like context and historical facts. Um, that he um, began his ministry during the end of King Manasseh's reign, um, which you can find in Kings 21 and 2 Chronicles. Um, And he continued through um, into King Josiah's reign, which is also in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Um, And so he was working from um, Judah um, after the destruction of Israel um, previously. And some of his um, fellow prophets at the time during the reign of King Josiah were... um, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So it was a a busy prophetic time. In fact, um, King Josiah's reign was one which was um, of great spiritual revival. So it was busy prophetically because God was really um, busy with the people of Judah at the time, renewing um, their faith and commitment to God. Now, this book is only three chapters long, um, and it is a prophetic vision of the impending doom of the city of Nineveh and the fall of the Assyrian Empire. So... I hope you're all ready for an encouraging (laughs) message. Um, So we're going to deal with some heavy topics this morning, um, but don't worry about that. Um, You may have heard of Nineveh before, um, but because previously to Nahum, a hundred years ago, Nineveh got a visit from another prophet. Um, His name was Jonah. Amazingly, at the time, um, they listened to Jonah, and the the whole city repented, and the empire, and God spared them. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't take them long to slip back into their old evil ways, um, and they were, you know, back to it. So Nahum summarizes it by saying this in Nahum 3.11, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. So you get a bit of a picture of, um, yeah, just how nice they were. Now, what we see is they had taken God's kindness for granted for long enough, And God speaks to Nahum to say that he's had enough. The time is up. So that's the backdrop. Today I want to take each chapter and suggest something that we can take away from each of them. And my invitation to you is obviously, if you haven't already, or if you haven't recently, to go back and read the book of Nahum this week and reflect on what God might want to say to you through it. And maybe this will help you have a bit of a structure. So chapter one, I want to look at the God of justice who comforts us. Chapter two, I want to look at the God of the impossible who amazes us. And chapter three, I want to look at the God of mercy who restores us. So chapter one, the God of justice comforts us. 
Now, over the last few years, I think we have all been more aware of the brokenness of our world with COVID, with wars, um, the climate crisis, um, continued stories of just all the child abuse, racism, shootings, and all the different things that go on in our world. And we can often find ourselves asking the questions, where are you, God? What are you up to? What are you going to do about it? Well, Nahum and the people of Judah had been watching the Assyrians and the people of Nineveh for over a century since their repentance under Jonah. They had heard about the devastation of Israel that happened before Jonah, and they were now seeing the Assyrians being even more aggressive and even worse than they were before. Nahum and the people of Judah had been watching and seeing all of this evil going on for too long, and they were asking the same questions. What is God going to do? Where is God in this? And into this situation, God speaks in Nahum 1, 2 to 8. And he says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. But in verse 7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. So Nahum starts by prophesying that all that they had seen, all that they had witnessed, was about to change. Now, at first reading, these verses seem pretty unpalatable. I mean, it's not really um, how we like to picture God. Um, I wouldn't put it on a fridge magnet. Um, or, or at least if you did, you wouldn't sell many. Um, and the question is often, is this really what God is like? I mean. Isn't God in a bit of a better mood in the New Testament? Hasn't, hasn't he changed? Well, actually, this theme of the day of judgment, or the day of the Lord, um, is one that goes all the way through the New Testament, to, all the way through the Old Testament into the New. So we read in Romans 2, Paul writes, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, be, being <clears throat> pass judgment on them, and yet do the same thing, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt to the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good deeds seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. This will take place on the day when, God's, when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. So you might be thinking, great, so Jeff, your good news this morning is that God is in just as much a bad mood now as he was in the Old Testament. Brilliant, thanks so much, that's encouraging. Um, well, I think, <clears throat> I think actually when we think of God's judgment and wrath, we can fall into a few um, different mistakes. And the first one is we, don't, we often don't like um, judgment and wrath for two reasons. The first one is that we, we are all aware that we've done wrong things, and we don't really like the idea that someone out there is angry with us. And, and, that, and that seems fair enough, to be fair. Um, but 
as we see um, in this passage in Romans, but also in the passage we read, where it says the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. There is always a place of hope. And that actually in this Romans passage, we see there are two different people. That actually, that if we run to Jesus, that place of refuge, then, then actually this sense of justice is good news. We don't have anything to fear if we have put our trust in Jesus. And the second one is that, so we don't like it because we're aware we've done something wrong and we don't like the idea that someone out there is mad at us. But the other thing is that often we see God's justice or his anger as um, intention with his love. But actually, God's justice isn't intention with his love. In many ways, it's a result of his love. Now, the, all illustrations fall short, but here's an attempt to illustrate it. Um, I'm a dad. Um, if, if I was playing with my kids and uh, Andrew walked up and punched Ro in the face, um, then, which would never happen. This is just an illustration. Um, and and I, I just, you know, stood up and looked at Andrew and said, don't worry, I'm just really loving. Um, I forgive you, it's all good. And I just appeared to completely be nonplussed about the fact that my kid had just been hit in the face. You wouldn't draw the conclusion that I loved Rowan. Like, you might have some questions about how good a parent I was and how much I cared about him. And in many ways, in, in some similar ways, it's, it's the same with God. God is a good and loving parent. And when we do things that hurt ourselves, hurt the world, and hurt other people, then it's his love that draws out of himself a reaction. And that justice and that um, anger is, is right because it's, a, it's caused by his love. And so, in, in fact, the picture of the word wrath um, that is translated wrath. Um, the, the original word in the Hebrew talks about the idea of heat. It has that sense of applying heat. Um, and so the first part of wrath is about the right anger when a law is broken. So it's about that idea that something bad has happened that is truly bad, and therefore the right response is being angry at the fact that a law has been broken, something bad has been done. But the second part is about that sense of heat being applied to something. And it has that picture of almost, it has that picture of like boiling away impurities, like purifying. And the Bible talks a lot about purifying gold, purifying things, and that the, the negative is taken away. So God's wrath isn't a sense of like, like when we think of us getting angry and just overreacting. It's A, a just wrath, and it's B, a wrath that actually makes things better. It's an anger that makes things better, that takes away the impurities and makes the situation better. And so, having set, having set that little bit of a framework, let's, have a, let's be clear on the theology of what we're saying. So, essentially, um, in, here's a picture that might help. In Luke 4.19, Jesus stands up in the temple and he reads from the book of Isaiah. At the end of that passage, he concludes that he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you look up the passage in Isaiah that he's quoting from, you find Jesus stops in the middle of a sentence because Isaiah continues, and the day of the vengeance of our Lord. Well, actually, the time between Jesus' incarnation, um, Jesus' first coming, Christmas, um, and the time between him coming back, which we read about in the Romans, is that the day when Jesus returns, 
That time in between is the, day of the, fa- is the year of the favor of our Lord. That is a time of favor. And both this passage, uh, both the passage in Nahum and the passage in Romans talks about the patience and kindness of God in waiting. So Nahum says that the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the, the guilty unpunished. That actually he's slow to anger. His patience is about creating a time where we can turn to him, where we can come to him and receive forgiveness. That that's his desire, that during this time, God is being patient with us. He's giving everyone a chance to come to him through Jesus to be saved from his anger. But like with Nahum, there will come a time when his patience runs out, when either we die or Jesus returns. Now, this all sounds a bit intimidating, but the justice of God is good news too. Now, I'd just like to give two reasons why this is good news. So there are some, some things we can fall into or we've already covered. But there's also reasons why this is good news. Why is the justice of God good news? Well, firstly, because it means that we live in a world of justice. We all want justice, right? Except for when we do something wrong. But everyone, we want justice for everyone else. And actually, it also is an opportunity to bring peace. Now, I want to illustrate it with a personal story. Now, this personal story... I'm sorry if you feel like it's too personal, um, but I'm, I'm, I've talked about it in this setting before, and I think it can be a little bit, it can be helpful. But um, I, as I've talked in this setting before, I, I experienced some abuse as a child, and the question of justice is, is one that I find really helpful, because actually, for me, something incredibly unjust happened. And as far as I'm aware, that person is out there living their life with no consequence as a result of of the injustice that I experienced at their hands. And that could be incredibly difficult. But for me, it's incredibly comforting because I know that one day justice will be done. That there there is a point at which that person will receive the justice due to them. And the other thing is I know it will be just. Because it's easy for me in an emotional moment to, it would be easy for me, I'm not a particularly violent person, but hypothetically, it would be easy for me to overreact in emotion and, for, and to dish out a justice that would be inappropriate, that would be too strong because there's too much of me mixed in it. But also, I know that person's backstory, I know their experiences, I know the things that they've gone through that resulted in them doing the things they did. It's easy for me to make excuses for them. And I might actually dish out justice that would be too weak and not what they deserve. But I know that God knows. I know that God knows everything. He knows everything about me, he knows everything about them, and I know that the justice that he will dish out will be perfectly just. And for me, in those moments, it is incredibly comforting to know that. And the other thing is, it breaks us free. Knowing the justice of God breaks us free from the cycle of revenge and violence which so much of our world is gripped in. Because it's not, I don't have to live my life seeking out revenge. I could so easily be built up with bitterness and anger and frustration and just looking for a chance to get back at at this person. And you know what? Knowing that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, he, it's him. It's, I can leave it up to him in his good hands, and I don't need to pursue it for myself. That's incredibly freeing. 
And actually, when we apply that to the world as a whole, when we think about the violent struggles outside of this world, or the, uh, outside of this room, the violent struggles outside of this room, actually, if, if we are able to draw a line and not do the tit for tat, it, it is incredibly hopeful for the planet. That if we could live in that way, then it can bring an end to the violence and revenge that goes around. So I'm going to leave it there. I know this is a massive topic, um, which, and there's so much more to cover, um, and we could say so much more on it. Um, but I, would, I love talking about theology, so if afterwards you have questions, do come up and chat to me. But I'm going to move on to chapter two. So chapter two, the God of the impossible amazes us. So chapter two describes what, goes, what is going to happen to the city of Nineveh. It describes what God's justice will look like. Nineveh was enjoying its golden age and the citizens had never had it so good. They had conquered Egypt, the empire was the largest in the world and therefore the, the vision that we read in chapter two would have seemed ridiculous to the people of Judah. So, and I can imagine that the Ninevites, when they heard it, um, when they heard it read out, would probably laugh. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but maybe you've been being prayed for and somebody has just spoken something over you, maybe prophetically or something else, and inside you just felt like, that is completely impossible. Like, you just wanted to laugh. You're like, that just seems ridiculous. Or maybe you found yourself um, praying a prayer and just as you were praying, um, you found yourself saying things in faith that you thought kind of inside, where is this coming from? There's no way this is going to happen. Well, we all face that sometimes, but God is the God of the impossible, and he loves to do the impossible. And he wants to amaze us with his great power, his love, and his mercy. And the Lord loves to do the impossible, and he especially loves to tell us about it prophetically before, so that we can thank him for it when we know it's him. Noah was told to build an ark, and everyone laughed. Abraham was promised a son, and Sarah laughed. Moses was told to free the Israelites, and Pharaoh laughed. All these things seemed impossible, but God did it. So the Assyrian Empire seemed so invincible that the fall of the capital sounded impossible. The people may have laughed, but in Nahum 2, um, 1 to 2, we read, an attack advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortresses, watch the roads, brace yourself, marshal all your strength. Now, though these words may have seemed laughable, God does do it. What we see in Nahum 2, 3 to 4 is that it prophesies that an army will destroy Nineveh. Oh, sorry, I've skipped over a bit. Uh, this seemed laughable, but sure enough, historically, we find that this happened. The king of Assyria died, the empire was plunged into civil war, and a man named, I'm going to say it slowly first, Nabopolassar, Nabopolassar um, took advantage of this and was crowned as the rival king in the city of Babylon. And more than this, we see that something else happened. In 2.3, Nahum prophesies that the army who destroys Nineveh will be dressed in scarlet and carrying red shields. Now, at the time of his writing, there was no army in the known world who wore red. Uh, but this new army decided that they would dress in red in, in order for their enemies to be unable to see their wounds. Good thinking, good thinking there. Um, <laughs> It sounds odd, but God puts these details in to show that he knows what's going to happen. 
In 5.8, we see that Nahum predicts the rivers of Nineveh would wash away the walls of the city. And Babylonian historians record that that is exactly what the army did. They blocked up the rivers so that they would overflow and wash out the foundations of the walls and they would collapse. And they would form ramps for the army, which is also predicted in Nineveh, in, in Nahum. And finally, in 11.13, it predicts that, Nahum would be, that Nineveh would be completely destroyed. The Babylonians were so determined to wipe out the city that they carried away the rubble to build other cities. And it took 2,400 years to rediscover where the city was because it was so completely devastated. And if you're interested, it's um, near the city of Mosul in Iraq. And you can go see a few rocks. Um, But whenever we read these prophetic literature like this, we're reminded that God is the Lord of time. He knows what is going to happen and he is in control. The fact is a really, and this fact that God is in control is a really easy pill to swallow when everything in our life is going well. But actually it is a much harder pill to swallow when everything is going badly. And it's often in those bad moments that we want an explanation. Why God did you allow this to happen? But in those moments, we need the comfort that is found. We don't, sorry, in those moments, Our comfort is not found in the why, it is found in the who. In those moments of suffering, we need to know the God of chapter one, the God of justice, the God who cares for those who trust in him. But it seems impossible that God, though it seemed impossible, God orchestrated and predicted in incredible detail the fall of Nineveh. God is the God of the impossible. I just want to ask you in light of that, are there areas in your life where you are limiting God? What things maybe appear impossible to your, in your life right now? And how might God be inviting you to pray and partner with him to see the impossible happen? Well, in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, we read, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could imagine, According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So finally, chapter three, the God of mercy restores us. So chapter three describes in fairly graphic detail the results of the city's downfall for the empire as a whole. Their violence has sown the seeds of their destruction and so Assyria will fall. The chapter ends with, the, with a picture of the king being killed. In verse 19 it says, nothing can heal you, your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? So in chapter one we see the justice of God and his promise, to rescue for his, his promise of rescue for his people. In chapter two we see what will happen to Nineveh, And in chapter three, we see the downfall of the empire as a whole. But God also explains in chapter three why he's judging them. What is he angry with Nineveh about? And he lists four things. He says God is against aggressive and violent behavior. That God is against untruthful and deceitful behavior. That God is against manipulative and controlling behavior and that God is against arrogant and self-reliant behavior. The whole book of Nahum speaks of and addresses the tragedy of violent oppression 
and of human suffering in history. But our human history is filled with people groups who use these methods that he lists to get what they want. We still see this today. But we've seen this in the empires of Egypt, of Rome, Persia, of Greece, of Babylon, and, and more recently, the Third Reich, Stalin's Soviet Union, and Mao's China. The list could go on. But God is against these things, whether in Nineveh, whether in Moscow, whether in Rome, whether in London, or whether in our own hearts. Soon after the fulfillment of Nahum's prophecy in the destruction of Assyria, the book of the law was found and was read out to the people in Judah. Having seen the justice and faithfulness of God through this message, but also being cut to the heart by the words of the law, the people of Israel turned from the worship of other gods and returned to the worship of one true God. When I was 11, um, I fell on the climbing frame and, uh, in our garden and badly cut my hand on a bolt that was sticking out. Um, as, in fact, you can, uh, I mean, you would, don't want to, but if you want to come look at my scars, uh, you can. Um, and uh, my sister's now a doctor, and she looked at it and she goes, wow, they did a bad job stitching that, <laughs> which is always reassuring. Um, and, and, uh, um, you can see, and as soon as I looked at my hand, I saw the severity of it, and I ran to my mum for help. Now, the book of Nineveh and the fate of Nineveh and actually, most of the stories of destruction in the Old Testament serve as examples of the severity and consequence of our sin. They make visible the severity of the invisible choices we make. They encourage us to run to God for help and healing. Each one of us have wounds in our life because of the sinful choices we have made. But they need not be fatal. King Jesus was wounded, he was mocked, and no one came to his aid, much like the king of Assyria in verse 19. But the difference is though his wounds were fatal, they did not lead to defeat. Rather, Jesus rose from the grave in victory, defeating sin and death for us. We celebrated this last week at Easter, and Andrew said something very similar to this that Jesus was wounded for us so that our wounds could be healed. He was judged in our place so that we could be forgiven. He was rejected so that we could be restored. As Nahum 1.15 says, look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Jesus brings peace between us and God through his wounds and when we trust in Jesus, we can know the promise of Nahum 1.17, that the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. So let's pray, and then we're going to have a, time, a moment to respond. Yeah, Father God, we just thank you that you are a God of justice. We thank you that one day Jesus will return and will set all things right. We thank you that you sent Jesus, your son, into the world to receive the justice that each one of us are due. 
God, would you help us be comforted by your justice? Father God, we thank you that you are the God of the impossible, that you can do more than we ask or imagine, that when we pray, you are powerful and able to answer. We ask, fill us with your faith. Father God, we thank you, you're a God of mercy and of justice. So we pray, God, would you reveal the wounds in our hearts and our lives? Would you help us see? Would you make those visible to us so that we might run to you, receive your forgiveness, your love and your mercy today? In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.